There's a saying that you may have heard before, hindsight is 2020. What people mean by this is when you look back at something in your life, you have a clearer perspective, better insight into what was going on. You understand the variables, you understand how things turned out. Before, your insight was fogged and incomplete, but now, looking back, it's as if you had perfect 2020 vision. Dubai roads, for instance, provide plenty of opportunities for this expression. Maybe you can't tell where you're going in the moment and the highways twist and turn, but once you make that left turn and realize it should have been a right, and you end up in Alcuz and you're 15 minutes behind schedule, um, you know what you could have done differently. Hindsight is 2020. You see, hindsight provides us a chance to think about what we could have done differently. It can either correct us or it can give us confidence about the outcome. Like, I'm sure glad that thing happened the way it did. When we replay something in our minds, it can bring back the emotions we felt then and result in thankfulness and praise. Well, in today's text, the author is going to ask the reader to use the tool of insight to look back on some difficult times and respond. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Psalm 124. If you open up your Bible to the the very middle, that's probably where it's at, or you'll be close. And you can also find it on page 8 in your bulletin. This summer we've been looking at the Songs of Ascent, and this is the fifth of 15 different Songs of Ascent, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And these are pilgrim songs, as we've talked about before. Three times every year, the people of Israel would make the journey up to Jerusalem from wherever they lived, a long journey, and they would sing these songs all on the way. Perhaps it was just something to do to pass the time, like a mixtape of songs for a road trip. But more than that, it helped the people to prepare their hearts to be in the city where God's presence dwelled. It helped them to remember why they were making the journey in the first place. Well, hopefully you found the text by now. Please follow along as I read Psalm 124. A Song of Ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the Maker, the one who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for the glory of your name. And Lord, help me to preach sincerely as a man commissioned by you, and in the sight of you. Amen. Christians, we are on a journey. We're on a journey to the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And God means to use this psalm to help us get there safely. If that sounds familiar, it's because those are Michael's words from a couple weeks ago when he preached Psalm 122. But it's also a fitting frame for our text as well. Listen to the main idea of Psalm 124. Our enemies are strong, but our help comes from, the, from God who is on our side. 
Our enemies are strong, but our help comes from God, who is on our side. On this journey to heaven, followers of Jesus face adversity and affliction, but this psalm is about remembering God's deliverance. And it's going to ask us to do three things, to reflect on our foes, to respond with praise, and to rely on the Lord. Reflect, respond, rely. So first, reflect. Reflect on our foes in verses 1 through 5. Straight away, we see something interesting. The psalm repeats itself verbatim. The 12 words that begin verse, the first verse are identical in the second if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. It's kind of like a DJ playing it back for emphasis. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, and then they'd all say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. We're hearing the song leader beckoning to the congregation to repeat after him in a loud, unified, and thunderous voice. And he does this for emphasis, to, to create emotion, to evoke emotion. We, We actually see the same tool in Psalm 129 later on. And here, in Psalm 124 and there, the the writer is making a conditional statement, a hypothetical proposition. He wants the people to own it, to really think about it for themselves. What if the Lord had not been on our side when people rose up against us? What if we were on our own? What if God abandoned us? What if someone or something else was on our side? Well, for those of you who know anything about grammar or about computer programming, conditional if statements require a result or a then statement. And we see three thens following here. Then they would have swallowed us up alive. Then the flood would have swept us away. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. The psalmist is using these different images to try to conjure up this image of people on the brink of destruction. I want you to use your imagination here because there's a reason that the psalm writer uses this imagery. You know, he could have said, you know, guys, you really need God on your side. Or he could have said, if it had not been the Lord on our side, things would have been bad. But that's not what he says. He wants his hearers to feel it. So in verse 3, we see a greedy monster who would have swallowed us up alive. So imagine you're watching National Geographic or the Animal Planet and you see a big fish and a little fish or a snake and a little tiny mouse and it swallows it up before it even knows what's happening. Now imagine you are that tiny fish or that small mouse, helpless, looking up at wide open jaws coming towards you. That is what the enemy would do if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Next, we see that this monster's anger was kindled against us. So imagine a fire getting bigger and bigger as kindling and fuel is thrown on top of it. That is the anger that we face if the Lord had not been on our side. In verses 4 and 5, we see something different than the destruction before. We see waters sweeping over us. And this water is presented in progressing degrees, getting bigger and bigger, from a flood to a torrent to raging waters. We don't get a lot of floods here in our city, so maybe it's hard to imagine, but think back to where you're from, or maybe you've seen on the news the devastation that a big flood can bring. The psalmist wants us to imagine floodwaters rising in our homes, over the couch, over a bookshelf, over even our families in our homes, and over our heads, threatening to drown us. 
This is the destruction that we face if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Well, as you stitch these images together, you get to see how they complement one another. Israel is needy. That's what they, these images are saying. Israel is dependent. It shows us that without the Lord on their side, they are helpless, lost, desperate, destitute, and on the brink of destruction. Well, who is the enemy that the psalm is comparing all these things to? Maybe you notice at the beginning that this psalm is a psalm of David. David wrote it. Wrote it. So if David is the author, perhaps it was the Philistines or one of his enemies. Or perhaps, since David wrote this, it was King Saul and all the times that Saul was trying to kill him. But the words in the psalm are pretty general, and they, they could fit a, a variety of settings in which God's people face opposition. And the fact that this psalm is in the Songs of Ascent shows that the Israelites connected it to their own pilgrimage, to their own journey to Jerusalem. They needed God's deliverance to allow them to go up to the Holy City. But if you're an Old Testament Israelite, and you're thinking about fleeing from enemies, you're thinking about a great water all around you and God delivering you, what's your mind to think of? You think of the Exodus, right? I think every Israelite would be thinking Exodus. So think back, maybe you've read this in your Bible reading plan this year in Exodus 12, 13, 14, of Israel escaping from Egypt, escaping slavery, fleeing from Pharaoh and the angry Egyptians. They came to the brink of the waters of the Red Sea and they were outmatched and outnumbered, outmanned. They stood no chance and they were cornered. If it had not been the Lord who was on their side, when their enemies, then their enemies would have crushed them. And even as God parted the Red Sea, great walls of water towering around them on both sides, and they walked through it, they were still helpless. If it had not been the Lord who was on their side, the waters would have gone over them. They were totally reliant on God every step of the way. They were at the complete mercy of God. And what was true of Israel in the Exodus, for David, for the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, is also true for the church today. The church isn't a place or a people group like Israel was. We're a spiritual people. But we too face trials and attacks. Through every age of the church history, God's people have faced hardships and persecutions from powerful and cruel enemies. It's good for Christians to know about this history. It helps us to understand God's faithfulness to the church through the ages. And it's also good to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted right now in the world. We often do this when we pray for unreached people groups, like Michael prayed for earlier for Gulf Arabs. There's persecution here against Christians. But we need to be intentional about it, especially when things are easy for us as believers. It's easy to take our freedom for granted, our freedom to gather like this today. So if you know someone who is being persecuted or could be persecuted, pray for them. There's also some resources that might be helpful. There's ministries like Dispatches from the Front or Voice of the Martyrs, places you can look to hear prayer requests and pray for other Christians in the world who are suffering. I know in the UAE, like many other countries, the church isn't facing outright opposition, but we still face constant afflictions that threaten our lives, they threaten the church. We face a dangerous world that tempts us and doesn't understand us. We face our own sin that leads to death. 
And we also face an enemy. Ephesians 6 reminds us of that, that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil in high places. Like ancient Israel, we are stuck between our enemies. And sometimes, for a moment, it seems like God has forgotten about us. He's left us alone. But that's not the end of the story for God's people. It's almost as if you could write in big letters the word but right in front of verse 6. But blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Verse 6 and 7 are answer, or answers to verses 1 through 5. God saved Israel from their beastly enemies. God saved David from the anger of his foes. God preserved a remnant of faithful Israelites to journey to Jerusalem. And God has delivered his people once and for all through the blood of Jesus. One reason that this psalm is placed in our Bibles is because it's a good practice for us to reflect. To reflect on the floods of our lives and to think about God has delivered us. The seriousness of our danger now reminds us how good it is that God is on our side. So today or sometime this week, I'd encourage you to think back about what God has delivered you from. You know, for all of us here right now, thus far, God has delivered us from COVID-19. Why has he done that? Why has God delivered us from that? Perhaps he's also delivered you from a hard past or a difficult family life. Maybe he's delivered you through addiction, through sin that you've battled for years, and finally found freedom from. Why does God deliver us from hardships and afflictions? Well, this deliverance is not proof that there's something special about, about you, I hate to say it, but it's proof of God's grace. God delivers us for his glory. So reflect on all these things, reflect on how God's delivered you, but greater than any of them, like the sun to a candle, is our deliverance in Christ. Christ died the death that we deserve and rose again to defeat death forever. Paul uses a conditional statement in 1 Corinthians 15, kind of like we see here in Psalm 124. And he says, If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And again, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Well, praise God that Christ has been raised. We are not still in our sins, and in him we have forgiveness and life forever. Let me also give you one side note as you reflect on the past. We have maybe a couple temptations that we should watch out for. Even if you're in Christ, you might be tempted to feel shame about your sin in your past. You might be tempted to wallow in guilt. But Christ has forgiven every sin and taken away our guilt and shame. Remember that there's no condemnation anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. And also, as you think back, as you reflect, you need to fight temptation to uh, revel in the nostalgia of your past life before Christ, to think highly of what life used to be like. Um, sometimes it's easy to reminisce, but I've known people who, through doing this, eventually they turn away from the faith. The Apostle Paul's friend Demas turned away because he was in love with the present world. So don't be like Demas. Don't be like Israel, who when faced with difficulties wished to go back to slavery. But remember that sin is deceitful, that the enemy has temptations, and don't be tempted by the evil one. Something else that we should notice about this psalm is that God being on their side did not prevent enemies from rising up against them. 
It didn't prevent the hardships. They were still there. And so for us Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when we face trials. We shouldn't be surprised, even though God is for us, that people rise up against the church. Jesus promised that difficulties would come to his followers. And sometimes the Christian life calls us to lament, like Michael talked about last week in Psalm 123. We also shouldn't be surprised when facing or when following Jesus doesn't leave us healthy and wealthy. You know, it can be easy to interpret our possessions or good fortunes as evidence that God's on our side, but that's the prosperity gospel. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, I know the prosperity gospel's wrong, but there's still subtle ways that we tend to believe it. You know, we think, oh, I got that job. God, God really is on my side. But he doesn't say that if you pray enough, you'll get that job. He doesn't say, if you follow me, you'll always recover from sickness. God doesn't say that if you follow me, you'll never struggle with infertility or with depression or with failure. But we know that we can trust God. Why is that? How do we know that we can trust God? Well, partly from our experience, as we pray and see answered prayers, as we see God fulfill his promises, we trust him more and more. But more than that, we trust God because the Bible tells us so. Think about the scripture reading from Romans 8 earlier that Emma read. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son for our sake, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And we know that while God does not promise the world's idea of the perfect life, he does promise us comfort and peace and deliverance, either in this life or the next. He promises then that when work is difficult or unfair, that he will use it for our good and for his glory. He promises that if we do struggle with depression, that one day every tear will be wiped away. And he promises us that even if we never get married, even if we never have kids, that God has designed it that way and that he has our best interests at heart. Church, God cares for you. God loves you. He's sufficient for you. He's your deliverance. Well, after reflecting on his foes, David responds by praising God. And that's, that's our second point today. Pray, respond with praise. Verses 6 through 8. Let me read this part again. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we've escaped. Maybe you didn't notice those exclamation points in there before. But David is filled with joy and gratitude because of God's deliverance. He can't keep from shouting. Church, does God's deliverance fill you with excitement? Does it make you want to shout with praise? And look at the imagery that he uses here. It's perhaps even more vivid than the last five verses were. He starts off by building on that image of that beast, the ferocious beast, by describing its teeth. And then he describes our escape uh, as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. Perhaps you don't know what a fowler is. It's not a very common word today. It's not someone who fouls somebody else, like in a football match. It describes someone who hunts and captures birds, who captures fowl. So somebody uses decoys and traps to attract birds and kill them. So this bird has been lured in. It seems to have fallen for the trap. And when hope seems lost, the snare breaks and the bird escapes. So perhaps you can imagine an innocent dove flying away 
into the distance and an angry man shaking his fist at the bird. That's kind of the picture here. What does this escape tell us about God? Well, it actually tells a very familiar story. It's the same story that we see from age to age. It's the story of man's weakness and sin and God's grace and redemption. We see this with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. They sinned and God punished them, but he did not destroy them. He left them and he gave them a promise in Genesis 3.15. We see this in ancient Israel as they rebel against God countless times, but they repent and they receive forgiveness. We see this as God eventually judges Israel by the nations of Assyria and Babylon, but he saves a faithful remnant. He keeps them. And we see that through the faithful remnant, Jesus Christ comes into the world to show God's grace and to deal with sin once and for all. In this psalm, we see how God's deliverance is even sweeter when we understand the bad news. And in the New Testament, like in Ephesians 2, we see that the gospel is even more glorious and sweet when we understand our helpless state. So if you want to read with me, Ephesians 2, it starts off, it says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see the similarities here, how the imagery fits into Ephesians 2? Just like a bird in a trap is as good as dead, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Just like a bird in a trap, we have no hope in ourselves for escape. We can't escape our own inadequacy, and we can't escape God's judgment on sin, because God is holy and we have not measured up to his standard. We deserve his wrath. But God is rich in mercy and love and has made us alive through Christ. So just like a bird, our escape had to come from outside of the trap, had to come outside of the net that we were trapped in. We needed not just intervention, we needed divine intervention. Friends, if you are hearing me today and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure where you stand before God, I hope you understand how dangerous and terrifying of a situation that you're in. Without Christ, you're without hope. Without Christ, God is not on your side. And before you can respond to God with praise, you must turn from your sins and trust in Him. Without God on our side, we stand condemned. So what can you do? Uh, you can look at the lyrics on Not In Me, the song that we'll sing in just a few minutes. I think it, it helps us think through this a little bit. It says, No list of sins I have not done, no list of virtues that I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. We can't earn salvation just because we are a little bit better, we think, than the person next to us. And then here's a prayer that we can all pray. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. So what can you do? You can turn from your sin and trust in God's mercy. Only he can deliver you from the snare of sin and death. 
and Christians in the room, I hope you haven't tuned me out as I've been talking about the gospel, about the good news, because it's for us too. Those words we can sing with just as loud a voice. It's like how Israel was still dependent on God as they walked through the Red Sea. The water was on both sides of them. They were delivered from their enemies, but they still had to walk. They were still dependent on God. We need to constantly remind ourselves of these truths. We need the good news as much today as the first moment that we believed. I shouldn't have to tell you that after you turn to Christ, you still struggle with sin, and you struggle with maybe countless other things. Pride, lust, jealousy, discontentment, doubt, even false doctrine and other things, they can creep into our hearts and our minds. But the more we understand ourselves and our sinfulness, the more we should cling to Jesus, the more we should look to Him. In Him, those snares are broken and they no longer have power over us. Not only have we escaped the snare, the snare is crushed, it's destroyed. Even on our darkest days as believers, God is on our side. He longs for us to go to Him, to ask Him for help, to confess our sin, and to accept His loving forgiveness. The gospel is sweeter when we reflect on the bad news. The outcome should have been different, but praise God that he has delivered us. Now in the final verse, verse 8, David looks to the Lord for help. And that's our third point. Rely on the Lord for help. It says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this verse is really the whole lesson of the psalm. God is our help. So far, everything in the psalm has been looking into the past tense. We have escaped. God has delivered us. Now what? Here, David uses the present continuous verb, is. God is our help, and he will be our help. So looking back will help us to look forward. Christians, don't allow your salvation to lead you to laziness or apathy or complacency in your faith. We don't simply coast now that we have Christ. Um, we're told in Scripture that anyone who thinks that he stands should take heed lest he fall. It's a continuous um, journey that we're on. Like a plant, if it's not growing, it's probably dead. That's like us in the Christian life. Now and forevermore, we must look to God for our help. And our help is still in his name. So what does it mean that God is for us? It means our help is in his name. And knowing that he is the creator of all things increases our trust in him as comforter wherever we go. But how does God help us in the world today? How does he intervene? I'll give you a few examples before we wrap up. One major difference between Christians today and Old Testament saints is the Holy Spirit. We have God's Spirit in us from the moment we accept Christ and believe. And God works in us for his good pleasure. One way that God works in us by the Holy Spirit is through his word. So perhaps you've experienced this often when I'm reading the Bible or reviewing scripture memory. At the end of the day, God uses it in a new and fresh way in my life. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. Maybe he uses it to comfort you by his spirit. Maybe he spurs you on to message a friend and encourage them. Maybe it teaches you or convicts you of sin and grows you to be more like Jesus by confessing and repenting. 
You know, God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of our soul and of our spirit and discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. His word never returns void. When it goes out, it accomplishes his purpose. Always. Another way that God works powerfully is through prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us that disciples should ask the Father for provision, for deliverance from temptation. And we have promises other, other places in Scripture for those very things. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation that has overtaken you is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your abilities. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. Perhaps that means he'll send miraculous deliverance your way. He'll just save you from your temptation. Or perhaps it means that you'll need to struggle your way through, keeping your eyes fixed on him. Some of you might be thinking, I don't even know if I can make it through this week. How can I have the strength to live for 10 or 20 years, 50 more years following Jesus? And that's true. You don't have the strength. But God's not calling you to do that right this minute. He's calling you to rely on him today to trust in him right now. He will help you, and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. One other major way that God intervenes in our life is through the church. Have you ever had a church member ask you how you're doing, what you're reading in the word, how they can pray for you? Perhaps the sermons or songs are making an impact in your life and they're changing you. Or maybe you've had a church member ask about sin in your life and how you're doing fighting sin fighting temptation. God uses the church to help us to grow in holiness on our journey to the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Church, are you looking to God for help? Our enemies are strong, but our help comes from God who is on our side. The one who made us, the one who made everything, he is able to help us. He is on our side. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your grace and your goodness towards us. We did not deserve your rescue. We can never have escaped the snare ourselves, but we praise you for not giving us as prey to our enemies. We praise you for keeping us alive to this day. We praise you for Jesus and the help of the Holy Spirit and that nothing can separate us from the love that you show in Christ Jesus. Help us to rely on you today this week and forevermore. Amen.